Oh, no, there's no space here, Maddie. How can you read that? That's so small. It's actually Caleb's Bible. Cable, uh, Caleb's <laughs> Bible. Do you trust it? I do. Is it a good one? Mm-hmm. NIV. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're going to read 1 John 1, 1 through 4. The carnation of the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Fabulous. Well, what Eugene Peterson says, our double joy. Maddie, just stay up here for a moment. Now, about a month ago or so, we told you that... um, Sam, with all of her work here in the local community, is stepping across into the city and will be spearheading some of the homeless initiatives for the city through Trellis. And then what I heard just before we went to South Africa is that Trellis has asked her to run similar initiatives in the three cities that make up Orange County. So now not only will Sam be involved, remember the great parable Jesus taught about, you know, if you're faithful with a little God, will entrust you with much if you're faithful with the city, God will give you many cities. Well, this is that for Sam, that uh, she is now stepping into that space of helping the other cities that make up Orange County and uh, instruct and help them in their work with homelessness. So we prayed, because now obviously we need help on the ground to get this great, beautiful community running well. And um, my prayer was for Madison to come on team as a catalyst And uh, I wasn't sure whether she would say yes, but she did. And so Maddie is joining us on staff as our chief catalyst. (laughs) So when do you actually start? I don't even know when you start. Today. Today? Oh. Oh, well, welcome. (laughs) So henceforth. If you have any questions about the inner minutia that makes Genesis what it is, tra-la-la-la, this is your gal. You want to find out more about table communities, you want to find out about our um, quarterly dinner at Chris and Merrill's, come to our house for the newbies and come and have a meal with us and hear the story. All of those things, tower initiative, everything that has to do with the catalytic part of who we are, she's your gal. I'm delighted. David, thank you, man. So we are diving into a conversation around 1 John, and uh, we're going to take about 10 weeks, we think, to explore what this incredible book teaches us about a deeper walk with Jesus. I want to frame frame what we're going to be talking around uh, tonight, really, that's all, and we're going to come to the table, and oh, Harry and Lily, just wave at us, great to have you guys with us, context context, their family and some peeps went out in, the, in July to start a, a table community in the, I say Tustin, but that's where they live, but actually it's on the beach, it's, it's complicated. It's great to have you. Welcome. And Harry's back from Mexico, so that's fabulous. And so I want to frame it tonight very simply around three ideas. The first is the beauty of Scripture. The second is the authorship of John And then thirdly, the centrality of Jesus. Sounds like a great Baptist message, doesn't it? 
But I, I just want to take those very simple pieces and spike our heart a little bit with what this book offers us. What it does, and hopefully we can kind of gallop our way through these three simple and yet profound truths that will tee up the series fully and well. The beauty of Scripture. I was just thinking about it the other day, yesterday actually, having just got in from South Africa on Friday. And, and I thought, you know, the Scripture, just turn me down again, please, because I speak too loud. Um, I, I was thinking about the beauty of the Scriptures. The Scriptures should not work. If you take a moment, and I know some of you are doubting the text. I know some of you are uncertain about the validity of the Scripture. And is the Scripture uh, still around? Is it, is, it, is it relevant to today's conversation and the cultural moment and all that it holds? Well, I'm compelled by it. I, I'm, I'm compelled. I have been for about 45, 46 years. But, but Why? It shouldn't work. Think about it for a moment. There were 66 books in here. They were written on three continents. They were written by about 40 authors in three different languages over a period of 1,500 years. 66 books. Three continents, three languages, 1,500 years, about 40 authors. And to add power to the keg, so to speak, 300 prophecies about Jesus approximately, most of which have already been fulfilled, throw in the archaeological evidence, and it sounds pretty dang compelling. There's beauty in this book. I think what makes it more compelling is the fact that people have been prepared to die for it. Dana and I were in Oxford when she went to study there, and we, there was a, a particular spot in Broad Street where two bishops were executed because they would not bow to the Catholic Queen, Queen Mary's uh, demands of them because of their convictions, because of the Bible. Now, I, sorry, it just blows my mind. They knew that the decision they would make would get them burnt for heresy and treason. Take your pick. I mean, all that they had to do is just shift it a little bit. Just enough to satisfy Mary without kind of twisting their own Protestant ethic and conviction about the text. It blows my mind, forgive my passion, that they would do that. And the story's well documented as they were placed on the stake tied to the stake and the flames were burnt and one of them had a, had a gunpowder keg attached to them that they would literally blow up. And he died quickly. Latimer, Hugh Latimer apparently died very quickly, whereas Nicholas Ridley took a whole lot longer and it was his cry was heard for a long time. I don't know how long it was. Oh God, please take me. Oh God, please take me. Why would people do that for a scripture so easily dismissed and so readily neglected? What did they know that we don't? Now, if that piece of historical and literally value is not enough, think for a moment, if you will. I wrote down here as I thought of people. The millions of lives that have been transformed by these texts, identities restored. 
people who've lost their way and whose identities through the reading of the scripture found hope again. Destinies rekindled. God, is there any hope for me? What could happen to someone like me who's done about everything imaginably wrong? Is there any destiny for me? Singleness celebrated. I had a tax, I have a tax issue in South Africa, and so I called the chartered accountant, a guy called Kurt, and it's very public knowledge, that he's a Jesus lover who has a desire for a gay lifestyle, but accepted because of his walk and faith that he will be celibate the rest of his life. How powerful is this book? That the desire to be loved is set aside in obedience to the Creator God. Singleness celebrated, marriages saved. Oh, how many marriages have been saved. The poor redeemed, the broken healed, the justice restored. What a fabulous book and how I love it. And if you don't remember this book, and you probably won't, in a year's time or five years' time, you might not look back and say, oh, I remember that was preached. Maybe you won't, but if we can put inside of you a deep love for the Scripture that will shape you and your family, that it won't be a dust-gathering book of antiquity with your name written on the inside, but a current book. I remember preaching in Mauritius, a little island off Madagascar, in a church planted by a 73-year-old granny. And I remember opening my Bible and she looked at my Bible and she said, Oh, Chris, I love it when I see the Bible so tattered and so readily marked. When she died, her son was sitting with her, probably my best friend. And he just looked at him and her mouth was dry because her she wasn't saliva was not working. And she just whispered to him, I just want to go. I just want to be with him. This is an incredible book that is transformative to those who own it and read it as a piece of literature. It is worthwhile. But as a book of divine instruction and spirit-empowered truth, it can transform your life. And now I have to discipline myself because many stories run to mind. Not only is the book to be celebrated and beautiful, but the authorship of John is particularly important. Theologians put it down as being written around about AD 90. I've heard as young as AD 60, the common era. I heard as late as 98, all towards the end of the first century. Think with me for a moment of the possible author. John was definitely a friend of Jesus. We don't know for sure if it was John, but we think it was. It points to it by the similar language used in the Gospel of John and the other two epistles. Because he was a friend of Jesus, he was cuddled close to Jesus on that final night where he was betrayed. He was the disciple who Jesus loved. Imagine, imagine that. Well, we can. He's the disciple. She's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was an appointed apostle. He was a father. He was a shepherd. This 
Tim Mackey from the Bible Project said was probably not a letter. It didn't have the beginning and the end of a classic letter written in antiquity. It was more like a poetic sermon. But it was written full of fatherly concern and shepherdly affection. This is the picture I have. He's probably in his 90s. He's the only one left of the original 12. The others have all been martyred. He's the only one who will never be martyred. There's some speculation, legend has it, that they tried to boil him in oil, but he wouldn't boil, so they took him out. We, don't, we can't verify it historically. I can imagine this old man, probably a little slouched, eyes probably a little shot, ears struggling to hear, probably couldn't see under the candlelight, probably had a scribe. Now, forgive me for using my imagination, but it does. I, 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 I'm compelled by it because I see him hand in forehead, pacing up and down, more like a shuffle as a 90-year-old does. We've just been with Meryl's dad, who is 91. I have a picture in my mind. His concern is for the believers and the churches, as we will see during this time, not just of his peers, but a bit like I am with you, a generation or two or three older. He's curious, why did God let him live till his old age? He's wondering sometimes with guilt, why did the others have to be martyred and yet he lived a life where he looked after Jesus' mother in the city of Ephesus, which is beautiful. We were there a few years ago. It's a stunning city built up on a hill with a theater looking down to where the harbor used to be. He's pacing up and down, thinking of these young believers, thinking of those who will follow in his wake, wondering who will carry the legacy on. Aware of the challenges and stresses and strains that are being thrown at this young, fragile church, a hundred years old, the first wave are dead. The second wave are getting old and grumpy. The third wave are needing to step up into the space and wondering if they will do that well. He uses an interesting literary pattern. It's not linear. It's not one to two to three to four. It's what they say, amplification. He uses cyclic repetition. Almost like an old man walking up and down. And I'm sure they thought, oh, there he goes again. But you've already said that. But I imagine he looked up to the scribe or to the hearers of this sermon. And he said, they have to get this. They, they have to get this. If they don't get this, we will not live through this century into the next and into the one following that. There is a deep emotion in this book, a deep fatherly affection. Please get this right. I don't care what else you do, he says. Get this right, as the Gnostics were whispering in this year. I'll talk about them in a moment. And the devil and all the distractions whispering on that end. An old man about to go and be with his savior friend, Jesus, who is desperately wanting them to make sure this is what matters most. And my dear friends, if we take 10 weeks that shape you as a, an emerging Jesus believer, and these stakes are driven into your heart and become anchor points around which you live the rest of your life, this book is worth the writing, the sermon is worth the preaching. Because, thirdly, it's about Jesus.
That's what it's about. It's about Jesus and his girl, his bride. That's what this book's about. The beauty of the scriptures, the authorship of John, the centrality of Jesus. Like with all of us, there are theological challenges that these younger believers are facing. Can you imagine, just pause for a moment, imagine not having this book. The Jewish believers had the Torah. The Gentile and Jewish believers had a few letters written by a few men whom they knew. They weren't mystified. John wasn't this kind of quasi-angelic person. He was a short man with a round nose, with a receding hairline, who was a boring speaker. Why would I base my life on what a short Jewish man with a hooked nose says? Like them, we face immature theology, which is uninformed, it's unformed rather, and insufficient. It's young, full of emotion, which is good, full of zeal, which is good, but without substance. Popular theology, which is flippant and culturally correct. Oh, the tragedy that every generation faces its wave of pop theology. It's very destructive. We'll have some time to look at that. And then more Gnostic theology where a few things happen. One, Jesus is challenged as the God-man, but also where the material man and the spiritual man don't connect. Material is evil, spirit is good. So I can have sex with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. It doesn't matter because I'm a Christian. See, my soul is pure, but my body is material, it's evil. The body can do whatever the body wants to do. It doesn't affect my spirit. Foolishness, stupidity. We are gloriously integrated whole human beings whom God has fashioned as a single entity. And I can't just do with my body whatever I want to. Get drunk, have sex, smoke dope, do drugs. Whatever, watch porn, I I can't do all of that and pretend my spirit is untainted by my bodily lustful behavior. That's what he teaches. Can I read this passage from the message? From the first day, we were there. From the first day, we were there taking it all in. Oh, I can imagine this old guy just saying, oh, I remember. I remember the first day I met him. Oh, I, I, I know exactly where I was. I was sitting there on the beach. And, and I heard a bit of a hustle and bustle, and, and, and I got distracted. But, but he walked up to me, and he called me by name. I remember that moment, because from the first day, we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We've verified it or proclaimed it. uh, Sorry, verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. We saw it happen. It happened right here. And now we're telling you in the most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this. Here it comes. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. The infinite life of God, the eternal, infinite God, life of God, 
took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now we are telling you so that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing this is simply, we want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double, sorry, your joy will double our joy. Now, let me say a few things about this and we'll come to the table. To understand this piece of writing is to understand John's drive to ensure we get Jesus right. I've been very curious by the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. He was one of the four or five most influential existential philosophers. With Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky and Sartre. But in their quest to find meaning, purpose and value, they faced the crisis dread and anxiety, I'll explain, in the face of an absurd world. These philosophers, Dostoevsky, the Russian, Kierkegaard was the, the Swede, I think, Assad, the Frenchman, and they looked at the meaning and purpose of life, and it was filtered through crisis, dread, and anxiety. Does that sound familiar? But their primary guidelines included authenticity, courage, and virtue. Now, they didn't all end up with the same conclusion. Nietzsche died, some argued, suicide, others not. Because the conclusion of a godless life is an absurd life without meaning. Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard didn't, they found Christ. John dives in from the first day we were there. I want to shout from the back row, what was it like? What was, it, what was he like, John? Please tell me. I don't mind if your voice is croaky and you can't get out really good grammatically correct sentences, but I need to know, John, what was he like? What did he say? What was he like in private? What did he whisper to you? Was he kind? Was he gentle? What was his touch like? And so John, what John does is he traces the narrative, Genesis 1, John 1, 1, John 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God spoke. The Trinity, God the Spirit, Jesus, the Word of God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Through Him, Jesus, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made. That See, folks, do you know what the point is here? This is not Jesus from, what's that silly comedy? Uh, say it again. That one. You know, and I want the baby Jesus, you know, the big chunky cheats, baby Jesus. Now, now I want to be this. No, no, this is the eternal God who was there from the beginning. This was the God who helped shape things. Nothing through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. What is your Jesus like? 
Is he the Jesus of your creation? Is he the Jesus of your friend's creation? Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Isn't it amazing that John uses four of the five senses to describe encountering Jesus? He said, I heard him. He says, I saw him. He says, I touched him. And I proclaimed him. The only sense he didn't use here was feeling. I didn't feel him. I heard him, saw him, touched him, tasted him, but I didn't feel him. Are feelings good? Of course they are, but feelings are not a compass. They're not a foundation for life. They are too fragile, vulnerable, and changeable. Folks, you could tonight have enjoyed worship and feel the presence of God, and tomorrow morning you could feel a thousand miles away from a God that doesn't exist. Which is the true truth? The one you see, the one you hear, the one you taste, the one you touch. I found an, an article in the British paper this week. They said they took an experimental group of young people off social media for a month, I believe. 50% felt better than them about themselves by just not being on social media. Frankie Schaefer. Now you've heard me mention Francis Schaefer often. His son Frankie Schaefer took the 23rd Psalm. Please listen. I think it's highly powerful and relevant. The Lord is my shepherd, the Bible says. I shall not want. Jesus, who was there from the beginning, who created all things, was there from the beginning. He is my shepherd. Humanism comes in and changes the 23rd Psalm with, I am my shepherd. But then that doesn't work, so sheep are my shepherd. Social media is my shepherd. They tell me what to wear, what to look like, how to behave, how not to behave, what my politics are, what I should believe culturally, socially, politically. Because sheep are my shepherd. Then everything is my shepherd. I better be tolerant about everything. I better embrace everything, challenge nothing except Christianity. Because finally, Frankie Schaefer says, nothing is my shepherd. I am rudderless in the oceans of life, thrown around by every storm because I have nothing to anchor myself with. And John's plea in that case, dear friends, is not the shifting sand of public opinion, but the anchor who is Jesus himself. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we are telling you in the most sober prose that what we have witnessed incredibly is this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. Austin's plea, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Are you your shepherd? Are sheep your shepherd? Is everything your shepherd? You are vulnerable to the opinions and swayed influences of everything and everyone. 
Because ultimately, nothing will be your shepherd and you will have no true sense of life, its meaning, purpose, and virtues. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. I think that's the invitation to this book. The infinite life of God appeared before us. If you and I position ourselves with posture and readiness, oh God, would you reveal yourself to me? Jesus, I want to be anchored around you in your majesty and your beauty and your wonder and your eternality and your healing and your worthiness. I want to anchor my life around that. I want to see it. I want to hear it. I want to touch it. I want to taste it as it appears before me. That's the invitation to this book. Would you pray with me?